Hello, everyone. I'm here with Professor Hugh Montgomery. Um, we're hoping to discuss artificial intelligence, specifically in respect to critical care, and hopefully just give you uh, an overview, an idea of where the journey is going and where it may end up. I'm going to pass you over to Hugh now and talk a bit about how we think this has all come about. Well, thank you. Um, it's an interesting topic, and I think it's probably worth us reflecting on Firstly, what AI is, where it's come from, where we're at now, and why it is going to radically change everything we do and already is. So artificial intelligence and machine learning are phrases which are sort of used interchangeably, but essentially they're sophisticated types of uh, computer program that allow you in a relatively unsupervised way very often to let the program learn from itself and get better and better at better at achieving a goal that you want it to do. And that might be to drive a car without crashing into a tree, or it might be to play a computer game better, which a lot of things have been tested on. But let's take the computer game example. You show it a game of, let's say, Space Invaders. This was done probably a decade ago now. And you say, uh, see what's going on in this thing. And your job is to make the score go up as quickly as you can to as high as you can. And from a basic architecture, the computer observes what's going on, works out what it is that gets points and works out how to do that in the most efficient and effective way and then ends up doing it. So you could take that to matters of medicine and say, we'd like you to learn, uh, for instance, what a breast cancer is on a mammogram and you give it lots of examples of a breast cancer and you give it lots of examples of things that aren't and it will work out the features that are there and get better and better and better at predicting. Now if you go back 10 or 20 years ago you couldn't do very much of this stuff but what's changed is essentially compute power and most of us are aware of Moore's law this idea that computing power on a chip doubles, it was said to be every year, and then every year and after two years. But either way, we've been on this exponential curve. And if you go back to when that was first started in the early 70s, you'll realise we, we reached the sort of 30 second doubling, as it were, if the chip power was doubling every couple of years, um, about three or four years ago. And that is the inflection point on an exponential curve. So the best example of that is the old uh, story of the emperor of whichever country you choose um, and a peasant saved that person from assassination the emperor says well you can have whatever you like as a present and the peasant says well I'll have a grain of rice on the first square of a chessboard I'll have two on the next square four on the next eight on the next and so forth until I've got the number of grains of rice for 64 squares and the emperor says well done you you can have it without realizing that at 32 squares it's one paddy field of rice but at 64 squares, it's a pile of rice higher than the whole of Mount Everest and bigger than Mount Everest from sea level. Once you get into this 30 second doubling exponentially, things really move. And we've moved into that space in the last four or five years. At the same time, as we've developed clouds, computing and storage, and at the same time as we've got batteries. So that's what's allowed things to move incredibly quickly. Um, it, a few years ago, uh, AlphaGo, was able to beat, you know, the computer program was able to beat the world's uh, master at Go. There are more permutations on a Go board than there are said to be atoms in the universe. Only a couple of years later, it was able to learn the game of chess and beat every single chess player in the world within four hours. And last year, we saw AlphaFold being able to predict protein folding. 
So things have really moved and it's going to radically change healthcare. Now, in what way? Well, the first thing is to say it's probably, in my view, going to be with images first, because AI is very, very good at image analysis, and it's getting better and better at it, which is why it can find your photographs on your computer, identify a cat, tag your image in your Facebook page, or whatever else it might be. Um, it's good at feature identification, and we've already seen this being applied, for instance, to analysis of retinal OCT images, diagnosing 54 diseases better than humans can in a matter of seconds compared to hours. Um, it, it will be applied to mammography. It will be applied to segmenting head and neck cancers. Are these threats to medicine? No, they're not. You talk to any radiologist, do they really like sitting in front of breast cancer images day after day after day, knowing that they miss an awful lot of cancers because it's very hard? It's not the rewarding part of their job nor for an oncologist to spend five or five and a half hours drawing circles around tumours and things on a head and neck scan. So this is going to displace activity that is dull and that humans are really not very good at um, and let them get on with things that are more important. So I think that's the first place it's going to hit. And I suppose, I mean, I'm monopolising this conversation, but I'm guessing you're probably going to be wondering what happens with anaesthetics and ITU, are you? Is that the... Yeah, absolutely. And I think the you've touched on the increase in computational power as being one component of how this marriage is going to come about. The second is obviously large data sets. And we have now an increasing number of electronic medical records, data right. generated and stored on ITUs. And because critical care has, for example, beat-to-beat blood pressures, hmm. does that make us the perfect or well, a ripe candidate for AI? Well, it's a really good question. And my strong instinct is not. And that's for a bunch of reasons. So the first thing, you're quite right, we've now got electronic data all over the place. But for machine learning and AI to work, it has to be really clean data it has to be really well curated in an architecture that can be used and interrogatable. It needs to have a very clear endpoint, and every variable in it has to be relatively clean and it has to be free of biases, which we'll talk about perhaps shortly. And um, one of the problems with, let's suppose weaning from a ventilator, right? You'd think, well, that's gotta be pretty straightforward. You've got some blood gases, you've got respiratory rates, you've got tidal volumes, compliances, all sorts of things, you've got waveforms. It really ought to be able to work that out. The trouble is, every single person listening to this call will have their own way of weaning a patient. It might be a variation on flavour, but they're all going to do it differently. Their sedation's going to be different, their case mix is going to be different. Sometimes you'll hear, well, the nurse would have changed, they're going to say, well, the patient looked tired, but quite what tired meant, no one was quite sure. And there's so much interference with the signal that you're going to end up with your signal being different from mine and different from for me from every single patient I look after. It'd be very, 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 very hard for the machine to ever learn anything. And the same would apply, let's suppose we're looking at, um, I mean, circulatory management. Well, whether you challenge against a Doppler, a Lidco, a CVP, none of the above, uh, your use of presser agents under what circumstances, the influence of which sedation you use, propofol or whatever it might be, will all influence those sorts of pressures. Very, very hard for it to learn. So it comes to the point that if we are going to implement health 
AI in healthcare, we really need to start from scratch and start at the very, very beginning with curating really clear, clean, pure data. And I go so far as to say that even if you were trying to predict outcomes of a disease, we actually need to start again because most diseases were named by usually white gentlemen wearing top hats in the Victorian era as being, you know, they thought that they saw achy joints and a funny rash, so it got called lupus, and then they fished around and found one test for it. But these aren't single diseases at all. If we take amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, motor neuron disease, you say, well, that's an obvious disease. You can definitely know that's one disease. And it clearly isn't. It's a combination of two to three of any one of 23 different gene variants with a bunch of modifiers on at least 11 different chromosomes. So it's not one disease at all. Uh, asthma, we now know, is at least seven totally different diseases that just end, end up with wheezing. So we probably need to start at the beginning, get the omics, get the data, clean it, curate it, re-identify what the disease states are. And, and only then can we start understanding whether we can get trajectory. And, and I'd go so far as well as to say there's an awful lot of other diagnoses we make, like AKI. AKI isn't a disease either. It's a little coding system for a flag to tell us, watch out, the kidneys are in trouble. And it served its purpose really well. But if you try to train a computer for that, it, it's actually, we've done it, it's very hard. Um, the same with sepsis. Sepsis doesn't exist. It, it, it's three, well, it exists now in one iteration, but there've been two other definitions of it. You can't train a computer to identify something that's a man-made construct for convenience of flagging. So I wouldn't be in intensive care. I do think it's got potential roles in anesthesia that might come first, actually. I mean, I think that's really interesting. And I think I might be paraphrasing here, but I think, are you basically saying that because our paradigms in ICU in terms of treatment goals and management are still unclear and are still possibly not suitable for the diseases we're trying to treat, that having AI might simply not be useful because we don't actually know what our end goal in some patients is. For example, raising the blood pressure is a very simple loop, but right. is that something that we're looking to try and do? Does that actually affect mortality? Quite right too. And, you know, I, I suppose I'm old now and all the things I thought I knew, I realise I don't know. We try and optimise variables, as you say, without knowing their impact. And there are dangers in creating algorithms based on incomplete information and then they are dangerous so let's take an example of you or i being called to the emergency department and there are two mighty sick people and let's suppose one of them the algorithm is very very good and it predicts has got a 30 percent mortality and there's someone else with a 98 percent. well who are you going to go and see well you might abandon the one with the 98 percent, or you might say, well, look, the one with the low mortality, let's, let's make it crazy, the mortality is 1% and the other one's 70%. Well, you're probably going to go, right, I'm going to go to the 70%, right? Because that's where I can really make a difference. But the person with the 1% mortality might only have that because under normal circumstances, you'd have seen them immediately jacked in eight litres of fluid, intubated them, whacked on some norepinephrine, shoved a neckline in, moved them to ITU, put them on ECMO, whatever else it might be. And that's why it's the 1%. So if you suddenly switch to the 70, you've now converted the people who would have done well into 100% mortality, and you get this horrible hunting effect of, of flip-flopping. Humans are going to have to be involved in 
the development of these algorithms, and by the way, I'm humans and real experts like you and I and others listening to this call who would understand the difficulties of this sort of approach and make sure it's baked in and also do something that's known in the sort of phrase as, as opening the black box because you have to be able to see why the computer thought something and see if there's a ground truth. So for the AKI work we did with DeepMind, for instance, it listed what turned out to be over 4,000 variables that it identified that were important, but in rank order. And you could actually look at them and go, yeah, that makes sense. But also you could look at them and go, hmm, that's something I could do something about. It wouldn't have surprised you. you know, very often it was, if you've got known diabetes, heart failure, sepsis, and someone's just given you gent a non-steroidal and a cephalosporin, your kidneys are probably going to go down. Um, but at least you could look at it and go, yeah, the ground truth seems to work here, and there might be one or two things I can avoid in this little package. Um, but we do need to make those things visible if we're going to use these things effectively. And I think just backtracking slightly, we talked, you talked a bit about sepsis and hemodynamic management. And I think there was a, a paper that was presented at Critical Care Reviews a couple of years ago by Professor Anthony Gordon that looked at AI, yeah. or rather, sorry, AI is probably the wrong word, machine learning for the combination of vasopressors and fluids in improving outcomes. And that was based on very large data sets where the outcome of what happened to people was known. And that in a way, it almost sounds like a basis of probability rather than intelligent thinking. Mm. Do you think that's reasonable to say? Well, I think it probably is. And um, I mean, these algorithms with the compute power, some of, some of them are finding associations that you wish to see find out if they're credibly causal. Um, I mean, if you run just the sort of 33, 34 variables you get on a standard full bag using these LFTs, you've got more you know combinations than there are stars in three galaxies but when you do that you can find a signal for a change in sodium between 140 and 141 or 140 and 139 now that's a that's a marginal thing but let's suppose there was something that was a little bit more significant as an association it does at least allow you to test whether that association is causal and change the variable and see if things happen which i think is one of the advantages of these systems they throw up something that you can say well actually biologically that would make sense were we to change it and i think just going back you mentioned obviously diagnostics in terms of imaging are a area ripe for ai because you have say a um you use the example of uh, mammograms but i've right. seen a paper from seoul looking at chest x-rays and the detection of lung cancers right ai outperformed clinicians or ecgs is another example so yeah. things with overt diagnostic uh, criteria and masses and masses of data that you can show a computer anything in ICU that you think may at some point be suitable for that I know we've talked about changing paradigms but anything current at the moment that you think actually I wouldn't mind if our ICU were able to do that well it's a very good a very good thought I mean my, my instinct is there'll be a lot to do with the omixes now because as we get diagnostic platforms or or platforms that can rapidly interrogate huge numbers of molecules at once. And some of these technologies, technologies really are coming down the line. And the issue won't be, I can't measure 30,000 molecules at once. The issue will be, what the hell do you do with the information when you've got it? My strong instinct is that those sorts of, that sort of interrogation may very rapidly help us understand whether or not, for instance, someone does or does not have a, a bacterial infection. And rather than just going for one 
marker like well we'll look at the cvp or uh, sorry crp and crp plus temperature or procalcitonin or whatever it might be that we're going to get a very much better signature i think there are going to be some other big paradigm shifts and you mentioned ecgs and of course that's another classic example of something that you know essentially was invented by eindhoven by sticking a dog with four paws in four tin buckets and measuring the string galvanometer signal and running a paper speed that sort of worked and we've inherited all of it including actually why cardiology departments are in basements very often because of course that's where when horses and carriages went past it didn't wobble the string galvanometer so we've ended up with this antiquated system where we look at a wibbly line and we recognize some core patterns often actually based on very poor data if you look at Socolo Leon criteria for LVH. I mean, I think that was based on 60 or 70 postmortems. I mean, but if you were to record the raw, the raw data, ML would be able to detect inflections, changes, variability, and that you just can't see with the naked eye. I think that's going to be one of the ways forward, actually. I think there will be things like ECGs where we're going to no longer look at 12 leads. There will be a digital recording which will have been associated with other pathologies I mean, it'd be rather a dream wouldn't it to get the raw digital data for a few hundred thousand ecgs and link them to cardiac function with mri uh, echo data coronary angiograms because i'll bet your bottom dollar that the ecg will be able to tell you a great deal of what those other modalities currently tell you so i think probably the answer is being blunt that maybe we have to start thinking rather than retrofitting AI to the existing signals we've got, I'd encourage us all to be thinking about starting again and going in the, you know, if, if one was trying to do this, what would we currently do? Um, don't be put off by this. I mean, the, the key bit, as I say, if you want to make a big contribution to this is, is clean curated data. You can get clean curated data, people bite your arm off and you'll have no shortage of people wanting to work with you to do clever uh, clever science on it. I think that's a very interesting way of putting it, um, sort of the retrofit aspect. I think the romantic part of me quite enjoys looking at the uh, <laughs> the pink grids and uh, having a, a giant stethoscope and those sorts of things. I well, think you're right, and I think you know that is a lesson, isn't it? I I do think that care has has actually cut worse because people have moved away from old technology that when you are taught to percuss a chest and listen to it um, with your stethoscope, you don't have to dolly around with trying to get an ultrasound machine to see if you can see X, Y, and Z, because you can tell straight away what the person's got. So there's a lot to be said for that. And I was being a bit nihilistic too. You'll talk about blood pressure drops and predictions. Um, the other bit, of course, that's got very interesting is preventing people falling off their perch in the first place. And, You'll be familiar with quite a lot of data now saying that even quite modest drops in blood pressure during surgery are associated with really quite profound impacts on short and, and medium term outcomes and that does seem to be causal not just the sickest people tend to drop their blood pressure a bit more um, and of course there have been some papers just saying well if we give low dose norepi we can keep that pressure up and outcomes appear to be better and there are technologies such as those from edwards life sciences that are predicting the drop in blood pressure before it happens and going ding, 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 and helping alert the anaesthetist to the fact that it might be about to happen. 
So that sort of approach, I think, does have a great deal of value, actually. To It's always better to keep the horse locked up, isn't it, than to go to the stable door when you can see its tail disappearing over the hillside. Absolutely. And um, what do you think sort of the barriers in us as achieving this uh, change in the way we think and data collection and uh, progression as a, a national service? Because I think we're unique in, in that we have that aspect to our healthcare here. Well, the barriers are political, financial and imaginative. And it disappointed me colossally that even with a COVID pandemic, when you and I and everyone else were shouting, saying, this is the chance, we must link data nationally across all hospitals, find a way of getting an architecture that can store all of that was essential. And we never achieved it, which still leaves us with the problem that there is very, very wide variability in outcome from COVID across intensive care units. And it's impossible to determine why it's there. Um, And we've done some calls with people who were happy to sign up um, and say anonymously to say, we'll share our data from IGNAR and tell you what our mortality was. And we think we, our number was bad and we think our number was good. And we had some conversations to try to unpick whether there was a something in there that differentiated the people who did better and, and less well. And there were a few themes about management engagement with staff and, and human factors stuff. But otherwise, we couldn't tell at all. So we do need to change it. I think it's one of those issues where we've got legacy systems of Frankenstein's monsters of IT with all sorts of bits of software cannibalized and bolted together in most trusts. And the bigger trusts with big money buy billing systems from America that have been sort of hacked up and tried to turn them into something else, which is basically Cerner and Epic. Um, You wouldn't do that now. That's one of these things I think we need to start again and go, given what we've got with compute power, with cloud storage and encryption and new algorithms, let's just start again. Let's start thinking, what would we want an EPR to do for the patient to give them access and ability to control data flow for the doctor and nurse and administrators? And just start from the beginning, because I really, really don't think that we're going to get the solution and, and fulfill the potential for this transformation if we try and stick a motor on a cart horse. You know, we need to start again. Whose responsibility is that? Is that us as clinicians to drive this conversation? Is that higher than us? Do we just accept that it's out of our hands? Do we lobby our national bodies, our colleges, our faculties? I think it's us. I think if you lobbied the people, they wouldn't know what to do. And I think that bringing solutions, not problems, is often a good way forward. We're having those conversations very broadly with anybody that will listen at the minute. Just uh, We've got a few talking shops of people that work in Google, in very high-level security encryption, uh, machine learning people, doctors, administrators, patients. And we're just starting to have these conversations. And drug companies to say, look, this is to everybody's advantage. And also this idea that you work with a big tech company or a big drug company, they're all evil. Um, they're not. And we'd all be dead if drug companies hadn't got antibiotics and new treatments for things. So there's a lot of skin in the game from patients, doctors, nurses, patients, uh, uh, drug companies, and anyone else. I think the money could be there to do this in a not for direct profit sort of way i.e. the money isn't made out of the sale of the software, 
Um, and if a drug company is able to make its money by developing a cheaper, quicker, better drug that improves outcome at lower cost by using those data, that seems to me like a win for everybody. But I think bringing a solution to the table is going to be the way forward. I mean, the NHS has traditionally been relatively slow, as you mentioned, to move along with technology. And part of the reasons for that is the governance around medical devices, around medical data, and the confidentiality issue of people's data. Mm. Is there a point at which we say, actually, as you said, this is a greater good, actually a random set of blood results with an outcome that's unlabeled is reasonable to share? It's a really good question. And, and there are tensions on both sides. I mean, I fall personally in one camp, but it's not that I don't understand the difficulties. So in some of the things we've done over the years of getting patients in a room, you will get people to say, I don't think anyone should have my personal medical data, not even the NHS should store it. It's an outrage. No one should have it. And you certainly shouldn't be working with commercial companies to develop new ways of analysing images or whatever else it might be. And I remember someone railing about that in a particular meeting and then another patient standing up and saying, that's all very well for you to say, but my wife died at the age of 31 of breast cancer, was missed on a mammogram, leaving me with two orphan children. So how dare you tell me that those mammographic data could or should not have been used? So I can see the tensions and they do relate to individual views. They relate to very strongly to an issue of trust. So in a room, if you ask people, are they happy for the NHS to store their data? 98 people will say yes and two will say no. The examples I often say, what about Virgin Healthcare? And people say, well, it's a good brand, we trust Virgin, uh, and it's normally around 55%. And if you invent something fictitious, which I usually say is Trump Healthcare, no one will let Trump Healthcare have their data. So there's partly a trust issue. There's partly an issue of your own sensitivities. There's partly an issue of what sort of data they are. Because if, for instance, you are, have a severe allergy to a particular drug, or you have um, epilepsy that requires particular treatment, you probably want everyone to be able to see that immediately. If you had a termination of pregnancy or a mental health thing that you'd rather people didn't know about, or a sexually transmitted infection, maybe that's not the sort of thing that you want everyone to know about. And that's why we have to start building in a dialogue with patients about access and availability of data, and also recognise that probably isn't a real way of anonymising data. In all honesty, these artificial intelligence algorithms find it increasingly easy to work back. You can put in endless safeguards, but if someone really, really wanted to crack the data, they probably could. So I, I think we've got to have these transparent conversations. For me, it is a greater good issue. It's a bit like vaccination. I feel very strongly that the reason you get vaccinated is partly for you, but it's mostly for other people. And I don't have very much truck with th that, those sorts of issues where your behaviour can kill someone else. And I think that that's putting it rather strongly, but for the AIML side of things too, my natural instinct is that if explained clearly, most people would like to contribute to a greater endeavour which even if it works with commercial partners, because the NHS is not an IT supplier, that would, would like to gift their data if it would improve their care and would improve the care of other people. And Britain's got a history of this, blood transfusion being an example. Um, we don't 
get paid for giving blood. So um, that's where I would stand. I think we do need to move forward um, and make the data available. Yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I think there's definitely an altruistic element to most people. I think, as you say, there is the trust issue. And I think, actually, if we can demonstrate it in smaller amounts, I think people would probably be happier and happier as time goes on, especially if uh, progress is detailed and uh, demonstrated. There's also, just a comment on that, there is this, there is this rather strange dichotomy, isn't there, where, where, in which we all think. Um, you know, if you get a a paper that says there's a small risk of blood clot from the pill, there's a stampede of people who are continuing to be sedentary, obese or smoke, or don't understand the much greater risk of dying from being pregnant. And we've got the same issues about privacy, which I take seriously too. I'm, I'm you know, I use anonymized browsers and I use DuckDuckGo and I use all these sorts of things too, because I don't want advertisers to trap me. But most people are very happy to have their TikTok app reading all of their contacts tracking them wherever they go you know they they give up an awful lot of personal information without much consideration actually backtracking slightly now i think we've obviously talked quite a bit about ai in particular in terms of technology outside of ai so just general developments is there anything on the horizon that you think is particularly relevant to critical care that's a very good question um i suspect that it will be the point of care testing opportunities more than anything else. I mean, I think, as you rightly pointed out, we get a a new way of measuring central blood volume or whatever else it might be. We still don't know what to do with the data. And we don't really know what cardiac outputs and stroke volumes and blood pressures and flows and things we're aiming for, what the disease of different perfusion, different organs actually are. So I think it's probably going to be some of this point of care testing type stuff. I mean, there are some increasing technologies, for instance, I mean, simple stuff. I think probably within the next four or five years, you'll be able to measure capillary glucose just from putting an eye scanner in front of someone, a bit like temperature from tympanic membrane. Ding, you get the answer. I think you'll just be able to do that. I think that's online soon. Um, I think we're going to be getting things like low field nuclear magnetic resonance devices coming in at 100 quid you know, easy to benchtop. And again, then the problem becomes what you do with the data if you can assay 36,000 molecules in a wee sample at once. But once that starts getting done regularly, I think the ML will apply to that and will feed into the back end of those technologies. So I think there's that. I mean, how much more we'll get in imaging, I don't know. It's, it's hard to, to think, isn't it, that only 20 years ago when I was first doing cardiology, a, an echo machine literally weighed two and a half metric tons. And now it's a you know, the butterfly devices, are they're in your pocket. Will that change? I don't know. That's a good thought. I haven't really given that any consideration. I mean, I think I've set my uh, aspirational bar slightly lower. I was looking more towards wireless monitoring. I think that's true. I think the, the, the taking the, the, the patient at home, as it were, the ward patient to be able to monitor them effectively and see what's changing. I mean, we've, we've seen the impact of things like news and news scores have had just in having trigger points. But if you were to collect those data early, um, get some ML to predict the decline a day before it happens and flag, say, you know, this bloke James is about to fall off his perch tomorrow. That's a very good example, actually. And that's much more readily done by even routine observations with frequency from a wearable device. And maybe the big impact is going to be from the wearables plus the ML at the back end to prevent the falling off the perch event in the first place. Yeah, I mean, wearables is definitely going to be the thing as we've seen with a hospital at home for COVID. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, even just on the commercial market, looking at sort of ECG straps and SATS probes and yeah. things like that that connect to uh, phones of uh, various brands, I think... But a lot really... of it is the ability to think differently. I mean, I can't, you know, I do declare an interest in that with Monty Mythe and we patented an idea 18 years ago, which we're just about trying to get to happen now, which just shows you how slow things can be. But this is patient-controlled fluids. So the idea that actually if you're sentient detecting your hydration state is much best done by your own osmostat and we've shown that if we dehydrate people by four or five percent which is actually quite a lot healthy volunteers that they can rehydrate themselves intravenously blind to knowing what they're getting to within about two or three hundred mils of the restarting volume so thirst is a really good guide to water requirement in most most people um it's just that most of us drink enough coffee or beer not to ever get particularly thirsty that would have been unthinkable to give patient access to control the fluids. But now, of course, that pump technology, the electronics for the algorithms and stuff is really, really cheap and really, really easy. So I suspect that we're going to see um, anyone listening to this has probably got their own clever ideas. And hopefully the, the issue now you alluded to earlier is how we get the development system in Britain and the MHRA process to be leaner, quicker, faster. Finally, in terms of uh, AI companies, healthcare companies out there, have you got any sort of working knowledge of who's playing in the British market at the moment or who we can expect to be coming out with? Well, it's, it's interesting. It, it seems to be spread across everything. So imaging companies, you know, the Philipses of the world and others are building their own algorithms. There are others that are trying to create agnostic software platforms that apply to those um, and cloud compute. So you've got some of the, the hardware people, some of the medical software people. You've got people taking slightly different approaches. So uh, Google, for instance, I don't work with them anymore, but you know they've acquired Fitbit, for instance, so they're getting into wearables. They've also got Google Health, which is applied to a whole raft of other different problems providing algorithm solutions. Microsoft have really gone for cloud software. So the idea, you know, they used to sell Microsoft Word or something, and you had to have it on your computer. Now it's a question of whatever you're using, could you use their AI algorithm architectures in the cloud to solve your problems? So that's the approach they're taking. So I think everyone's in the game, and an awful lot of it, of course, we won't even see. So if you look at the Glaxos, the AstraZeneca's of the world, they've all got, you know, the Johnson Johnson's, name any of them, they've all got absolutely huge AI and ML divisions now to try to better phenotype disease states so that you say you're not treating asthma as a disease because it's not, it's seven diseases or more, and you need to know which one you're treating to get best effect. But also once you know what the disease is, ML can identify the networks and pathways, the likely causal molecules. It can then um, work out using the, the genetics from that, how the protein folds, so it knows the geometry of the protein, and therefore it can work out what reagent or chemical that might already exist as a drug for second use would fit into that molecule to do what you want or how to engineer it, and then produce that thing, and then use sophisticated new trial technologies, actually, to prove that that drug works and to do it quickly. And we know that this can be done, and um, agents effective against Ebola or likely effective against Ebola were identified in hours from libraries of, of existing agents. So I think we're going to see hopefully a, a really rapid transformation in pharmacology actually 
uh, in the next year or two with a hopefully a shortening of a drug cycle from 15 years to I mean I was going to say months it'd be nice to think it could be that but but hell of, hell of a lot shorter than 15 years anyway Okay, brilliant. So I think, as you've mentioned, sort of this, the diagnostics, the therapeutics, drug development, AI's got a role in all these things sort of uh, directly or indirectly involved in multiple specialities. And it's clearly here um, for the long run if the big companies are investing in it. So there's obviously a mileage in it. So I think it's just a case of keeping an eye and ear out for the future and seeing whether we can contribute with the clean data we've spoken about. I think you're absolutely right. And remember that, that, that the sweet spot for getting this right is, is people who understand both domains. And there are some brilliant software coders who have absolutely no idea what medicine is or how the system works. And there are a whole bunch of doctors who haven't got a scoobies about how these things work. But the good news is that in the medical world, you don't have to. It really has moved to the state of double-click the icon. So if you can trust that a clever computer scientist could do something very clever to predict or prevent or whatever, then you just have to start talking with them and explain the specific nature of the problem that you've got that they could solve. So we need a lot more dialogue between doctors talking to computer scientists. And if you anyone contacts anyone who wants to be local to them working machine learning at a university or a company, in general, they're not going to turn you away. They're going to go, well, it'd be really interesting to hear what your issues are, because then we might be able to develop a product that will help.